You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God who accepts our hearts, that in Christ you, the perfect and holy, purest God, would allow us to even say, take our hearts, and you freely, freely will take it because you've freely given yours. So Father, soak us in that truth because of what you have done in Christ and the grace that we have. None of us come to you worthy. We come to you loved. Uh, And we come to you with you wanting to know us. But we don't come worthy. But yet we find that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level for all of us. And no matter what we've done and where we've been, how good or bad we've been, whatever, that at the cross, everything's made right again. And everything is good. And so, Father, we ask that you would open our Eyes that we would see you clearly today. That you would open our minds that we would think and understand clearly. That you would open our ears that we would hear clearly. That you would open our hearts that we would feel the invitation extended to us from you. Through this gathering, through communion, through prayer, through music, through this word. Father, continue to be here and move in your way. In the name of Jesus, amen. This is an exciting time for us because last week we cast a new vision as a church that we're praying and we're believing and, and we believe the Holy Spirit has made it clear to us that we can be a church and should be a church full of disciples, people who are gospel-driven and gospel-centered in everything that we are, not just in church but in how we live our lives, as everyday people in everyday places and in everyday ways, and that we can be a church that is joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. And that's, that's not a sentence for us. It's not a fun statement. It's not just something to put on a bulletin. It's not just so we can come to you and say, hey, guys, we have a vision statement now. It, it, it's life for us. It means something for us. It has purpose. Every word has purpose. purpose. And last week, we hope, I hope, that we rooted that theologically, that we grounded that biblically for you so you can understand that it is, it is who God is and what he's called us to be and who, he's, who he himself is that calls us to be joined in his pursuit of restoring lives. And, and joined is a very, very specific word. And if you're here and you're looking for a church home and you're visiting, we want you to know, we need you to know that, that we want to be disciples here, that we want to be joined with God, that we don't want church to just be something we do every week. We want to be the church and no longer just simply do church, so to speak. And We don't want to plan just for an event together. We want to plan for an eternity, truly, together. And we want to plan for a life together. But that in and of itself will change you know, church. And it should because it's God's. And I hope we laid that out last week. And, and so this week is going to be a little different. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a lot today. And, and I realize that. And if we're visiting... Um, two caveats for you. Uh, I'm going to give a lot more than I normally do, and I might go longer than I normally do. Uh, and for those who, um, and, well, and if I see anybody nod off or start texting or getting on Facebook, um, first off, I don't blame you. Um, second, I, will, uh, I, I won't say anything. Um, no, I, I want us to just be together and hear what God is doing, because today we're going to give a practical in a meaningful way that we're going to try and live out this vision as individual people, as everyday people in everyday places and everyday ways, and that we're going to live out this vision as a community of God's people here at this place in this location as Williamsburg Christian Church. And so that's where we're going to be. And so before we start, I, I need to tell you a little something about Jesus' day. Uh, in Jesus' day, and when you read the Gospels, you discover that it usually pays attention to three categories of, of bad people, all right? There's those who are called the prostitutes. 
Uh, they're always labeled specifically in Scripture. They're usually coupled with one of the two other words that I'm going to share in just a minute. But people are known as prostitutes. You know what they're known for. You know what they're doing. That's why they're called prostitutes. And, and they're always specified in Scripture. There seems to be like a prostitute was labeled by their sin, right? And so that's how they were seen. And then there's another category of people called sinners. In Scripture, it's, it's you know, prostitutes and sinners. And sinners are people who were known publicly for the willful breaking of God's law. These are people who everybody knew chose to do the opposite of what God wanted them to do. And so they were called sinners. Now, prostitutes were sinners. But prostitution was different because it was choosing to break God's law for money. Right? It was a vocation. And so they, though they were sinners, they were so bad that they needed their own category. Well, the same thing about this final category. This category was another vocation that was considered one of the most despicable, hated vocations and jobs and professions. These were bad people. These were people who were known simply as, in sort of normal social circles, as thieves. They were called tax collectors. Yes, some of you agree, even though we're not living in Jesus' day. We're not talking about, you know, modern-day tax collectors, though, you know, that's another conversation for another time. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were, they were bad people. Tax collectors would collect the Roman tax. There were three principal taxes if you lived in any kind of control of Rome, whether you're a Roman citizen or an exiled Jew, right? There were three principal taxes. There was the head tax that you paid for every person in your family. Um, there was also the land taxes, which is pretty self-explanatory. And then there was the custom taxes. Custom taxes were taxes that you paid on goods and products, uh, custom taxes really hit the self-employed and small business owner in between the eyes, but custom taxes affected everyone. And the thing about a tax collector is they could come into your home and, and they could look at your goods or they could look at your cattle, they could look at your food, and they could look at the number of the people in your home and, and they would assess the value of what needed to be taxed. They were also tax assessors. But being a tax collector and being a thief, you could assess whatever value you wanted to assess. So you would inflate the value of that product because you as a tax collector would make a commission and you could state it whatever you wanted it to be. And so tax collectors were very wealthy and they were known as thieves because they literally did rip people off, robbed people, and they were okay because they got paid off a commission. As a matter of fact, the Roman government made allowance for that with some boundaries, but made very, very, very liberal allowance for a tax collector to just rip people off and make whatever kind of money they wanted to make. Now, tax collectors were seen as such bad and despicable people that not only did they get their own category in Scripture, but a Jewish rabbi or teacher or religious leader would declare your home unclean if a tax collector entered into your home. And if you, by chance, were associated with a tax collector, had a friend who was a tax collector, hung out with a tax collector then according to society, you were seen as a dishonest person yourself because only dishonest people keep with dishonest people. And you're a bit sketchy in the eyes of other folks. Tax collectors, not a popular, popular people. And being as tax collectors had such a rugged and demanding and intrusive and harassing vocation, they weren't exactly the warmest of people in the world. They were about as gruff as you would think they'd need to be. For this man named Matthew, it was a normal day for him. He was sitting in his tax booth 
on this main business highway collecting taxes and making his really, really nice living. And it was a normal day like any other. He's an everyday person in his everyday place doing what he does every day and until Jesus showed up. Matthew was a little different than just every other tax collector because Matthew was a Jew working for the enemy, Rome, ripping off his fellow brothers and sisters and patriots. And so he was not only a tax collector who was despicable, he was a traitor who in some people's mind was deserving of nothing less than death. But Jesus showed up and had different plans, as Jesus often does. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he says, uh, Matthew, Matthew in his own account says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to Matthew, Follow me. So he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, Jesus said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. We learn a lot from this verse. Judgmentalism has always existed in the hearts of religious people. Still does. Jesus sees Matthew, this despicable human being, and simply looks at him and says, Matthew, I want you to slide out from underneath your table. Follow me. Follow me. For a Jewish rabbi to say, follow me, was an invitation to learn and to watch and to be a part of the Jewish rabbi's life. For whatever reason, reason Matthew thought that was a worthy invitation and so he got up and the first thing Matthew does is you know as a tax collector and sinner would as if he threw a big party for his other tax collector and sinner people and, and the thing about Jesus is Jesus didn't look at Matthew and say Matthew I want you to follow me but 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 oh, sit down Matthew don't slide out yet follow me tomorrow at 2 p.m. between now and then I want you to give all the money you ripped off back to people I want you to sell some stuff I want you to go to the temple, get some forgiveness of sin, and then I want you to come, and then you can follow me. That wasn't Jesus' way. Jesus looked at Matthew right where he was, right where he literally was, emotionally was, spiritually was, and simply invited him to follow him. Wow. So Matthew does, and of course, like I say, he throws a party. And, and the good thing about Jesus is Jesus is Jesus' disciples. I feel kind of sorry for these guys because now they're going to be lumped in with the people that they're partying with. And so Matthew does what, you know, he, he gets his tax collectors and friends. He doesn't have any good, good religious friends. He doesn't have a good crowd. It's just his tax collector and sinner people. And they throw a party, and Jesus is hanging out with the bad people. Jesus is spending time with the bad people. And, you know, who knows? Obviously, the religious... The religiously trained and religious in the know people looked at that and associated Jesus with those people and wondered why Jesus would do such a thing. Matthew saw Jesus. He saw Jesus after his invitation to follow him, spend time with more people like him. Wow. There's a lot of things Matthew saw when he accepted this invitation to follow Jesus. Matthew saw in Matthew 9, verse 35, he saw Jesus go to towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Matthew saw Jesus look at a crowd of weary and worn out people. And Matthew saw Jesus do something about it. Matthew saw Jesus have compassion for these weary and worn out people. Matthew saw Jesus standing in synagogues preaching this message of the kingdom of God. Matthew saw Jesus healing people who most people wouldn't give the time of day to. Matthew saw this. And so Matthew sees Jesus at first hanging out at his house, having a party with people just like him. And then Matthew sees Jesus go to the synagogue and preach this amazing things about the kingdom of God. And then Matthew sees Jesus going out having compassion for people who were just weary and worn out from life. And I wonder if this happened to shape Matthew's life just a little. You know, if Matthew, when he saw Jesus look at people and have compassion, I wonder if Matthew himself was challenged to see people differently now, because Jesus did. And I have to believe he did. And maybe Matthew himself didn't see people the same way, because Jesus didn't see people the same. Matthew heard some things from Jesus. Matthew heard Jesus at one time in Jesus' life get approached by a theologian who asked Jesus just to test him. Hey, Jesus, what's the most important thing about God? What's the most important thing we need to do in order to be acceptable to God? Matthew's standing there, and he sees all this, but then he hears what Jesus has to say. And Matthew, being a tax collector and being a Jew, he would know something about Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He'd know something about the Old Testament. And so when Jesus would say this, and he would hear this, this had, to, this had to mess with Matthew just a little bit. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together in the same place, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, talking to Jesus, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law And the prophets depend on these two commandments. Matthew heard Jesus say, take that whole Old Testament, the don't gossip and the love and and, and to take care of the poor and to speak up for the oppressed and to help give sight to the blind and, and all of these things give to God. Matthew heard Jesus say, look, all of that, all the law and all the prophets, if you boil it all down, it hangs on this supreme ethic, the supreme vision for life. The supreme way of living. Jesus says, you'll take care of all of those minute, major, and important details if you shoot for these two things. Love God with everything you are, all you think, all you feel, all you do. And love your neighbor as yourself. I just can't help but wonder what Matthew was thinking. Because he lived in a religious world that had a lot of things religious people needed to do in order to be right for God. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, love God truly with your life and love people truly with your life and you'll take care of the rest. All of it depends on those two things. Matthew didn't just hear these things. He didn't just see these things. Matthew actually had a chance to join Jesus in this too. 
See, there was a time where Jesus and his disciples are off in this very remote place, sort of in the middle of nowhere, and there's a crowd of people. They're hungry, and they've been journeying for a long time, and they're on their way to a Passover festival. So they've been on a journey and been on the road, and and so the disciples look at this immense crowd of people. The Bible says about 5,000 people. And they look at Jesus and they're like, you know, they, they look hungry and we're in the middle of nowhere. They're not going to make it anywhere. We only have just a few bucks. How are we going to feed them? And Jesus sees this little boy who's real happy and has his lunchbox. You know, there's some bread, five pieces and two fish, mama packed for him. And Jesus looks at this little boy and says, uh, give, me your, give me your food. And this is what happens in Matthew 14. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. You see that? He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was filled. Then the disciples, they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. I mean, think about this. Matthew saw Jesus do these things. And Matthew heard Jesus talk about why he was doing these things. And now Jesus invites Matthew to get in on it. Now Jesus invites Matthew to like join him. Can you imagine being a disciple and you're walking around and you knew there was five loaves and two pieces of fish and you got your little basket and it's got bread and you're like 3,001, 3,002, and it's never going out. You're never running out of bread and you're like, when the world, I'm not running out of bread. I fed 3,000 people and I've still got more bread and fish in this little bitty basket. Could you imagine what that must have been like for Matthew to touch that? Time after time after time after time again, he touched it. He smelled it. He saw it. He got in on it. He joined Jesus in it. No longer did he sit back and watch Jesus or even sit down and hear Jesus. Jesus invited him to actually do something with it and join him. And the disciples, they didn't have any power to make it multiply. Jesus had all the power to do it, but Jesus asked them. He asked them to physically distribute it, and he asked them to physically pick it up. And, and, you know, Jesus is God. I mean, Jesus could have snapped his finger and a full four-course meal could have been in front of every person with a knife, fork, and a spoon. I mean, they wouldn't have known what a knife, fork, and spoon was, but he could have done that. And then, you know, it could have been some tartar sauce for the fish and there could have been some cheese and butter for the bread and Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do, but instead Jesus gave the disciples a basket and said, I want you to join me in this mission because you've heard me and you've seen me love God. You've heard me, and you've seen me love people. Now just join me. See, what Matthew learned is that when you accept an invitation to follow Jesus, it will lead you to a closer life of following Jesus, loving people, and loving God. And it will change your life. See, Matthew spent the rest of his life preaching in Persia and Ethiopia. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go preach, that was Matthew's territory. But not only did it change Matthew's life, it changed his death. Matthew didn't die like every other normal Jewish man. He didn't die of old age or sickness. Matthew died by an axe. He was axed to death because he preached and lived. He shared and showed the gospel. He loved God, loved people, and followed Jesus cost him his life, but it was a price he was willing to pay. So we live in a world that has this idea that we can be fans of Jesus and not really followers of Jesus. 
Or that we can commune and believe in God. We can sort of live in this circle of loving God. And that's sort of where we live. We don't really, we don't really, we're not really a part, an active part of a community where, where I belong or where other people can or anybody can belong. But we, we pray a lot and we, we read the Bible a lot and, and we, we say and we believe and we even think that we, that we have this really full relationship with God. But we're not really getting in on mission. Our behavior is not really changing much or, or we're not really a part of a community and we're not really belonging somewhere. But, you know, I love God. And, and that's not... That's not the whole of Christianity. That's not where Matthew lived. Or we think we, you know, we love people. I've got a lot of friends, and they're, they're Christian friends, and I'm a part of a community, and I go to church every week, and I do the, I do the fellowship fun things or whatever, and, and, and I have a lot of friends who are Christians, but the, but the struggle with that is if that's all I do, then I'm just really part of a, a, a sort of a club. I've just got good friends, and I've got community. But I'm not, really, I'm not really communing and believing more in God. I'm not really putting myself into that place. And for some of us, we, we can live in that last circle where we're just, man, we're activists. You know, we're involved. We're workers, worker bees. I mean, we're following Jesus' mission. We're doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. And our, our behavior's changing, but we don't really commune with God. We don't really believe God more, you know, for who he says he is and what he says is true about me. And, and you know, we're not really involved in community, like authentic community. And I mean, authentic community, not, not football buddies, like meaningful community, life, eternal community. See, when we look at Matthew, he lived in the middle. His life lived in loving God, loving people, and following Jesus. That was his life. It wasn't just loving God. It wasn't just loving people. It wasn't just following Jesus. It was the whole for him. See, Matthew didn't compartmentalize his Christian faith. He, it was all or it was not. It's either whole or it's unwhole. For those of us who have been baptized into Christ, for those of us who claim faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are called to live where Matthew lived. We're called to experience what Matthew experienced because this is what the Bible calls a disciple. And in the commission, Jesus said that he wants to make disciples who make disciples. And so this changes everything for us because no longer do we sit on the sidelines and become fans of Jesus. We really get into the trenches and become followers of Jesus. No longer do we just, you know, settle with the fact that I just go to church once a week, maybe an hour and 15 minutes or whatever the case may be. No longer am I allowed to settle for that because I'm starting to understand that who Jesus is and what he's done for me in the gospel, what he's done for me on the cross, it's so eternal and it's so present and it's so restorative and it's so redemptive and it's so real that my experience and my desires begin to change and I realize, man, I'm going to be with God forever. I'm created to enjoy God. I want to commune with God more. I want to have prayer and time in the Word with other Christians as a part of my life individually. I want it in my life again. And then not only that, I want meaningful relationships. I want relationships that matter. Matter more than just, hey man, how was the game last day? Or, hey, hey, there's this great sale at Old Navy. I mean, I want a relationship with, a, with another man who says, who I can look at and say, dude, I, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of husband I need to be. And I know I'm not. And I need somebody to help me. I need you to pray for me. I mean, meaningful relationships. Yeah, intrusive. It's what we're called. I mean, it's what we're called to be. And, and not just that. I don't want to just do outreach with the church. I mean, I want to be a part of a community who, who cares about a community that does outreach for sure, like local mission that does mission with Jesus. I want to, with 11 other people, going with the disciples thing, I need to, with other people, take my bread basket and my fish basket and hand it out. And join Jesus in that work. 
But we need to be everyday people who in everyday places, in everyday ways, love God, love people, and follow Jesus, and our lives look like it. And then if your life looks like it in everyday ways and in everyday places, as an everyday person in work, at home, the way you love your wife, the way you love your kids, if your life begins to look like a person who doesn't just love God and who doesn't just love people and who doesn't just follow Jesus, but who does it all because that's what discipleship is, because that's what Christianity is, then when you come here and you're doing that and I come together and we're doing that and we're doing that together, then, then the things change in church. See, then church changes. Because we realize that the mission of God is not about the saved, it involves the saved. And some of us are going to remain critics. Some of us are going to come to church and we're going to continue just to sort of sit on the sidelines and be critics. And, and God is just inviting you in. He's inviting you to stop being critics and stop sitting on the sidelines and start joining him in love and joining him in experience and joining him in following. He's inviting me to that. This changes the way I love my wife now. This changes the way I see you it changes the way I see this building. It changes the way I see contribution. It changes the way I see communion. It changes the way I see the tears flowing from your eyes. It changes the way I see the joys in your life. I asked, for the last four and a half months, I've asked several men and several women this question. I've asked several, but do you have anybody that's a part of this fellowship, this community, this church? that you feel like you could be open with, that you feel like that, that, that's just a, a, a deep, soulish kind of friend for you. Someone that you could look at and say, yeah, I just don't know if I'm the mother I need to be. Or I don't know if I'm the husband I need to be. Or, we need, that's who we're called to be. If we really are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we... You know, you're not going to be besties with everybody. You're not, like, everybody here is not going to be your best friend. You're not even going to want to hang out with everybody here. That's okay. That's not what God's calling us to. He's calling us to have meaningful life with God that loves God and looks like it, that loves people and looks like it, to where communion and believing in God is important, to where community and people belonging is important, and to where mission and behavior changes as a result of those two things, not the other way around. That's a disciple. And that's who he's called us to be. Everyday people, in everyday places, in everyday ways, following after Jesus, being joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives, and then doing it together because we're a community too. No man, no woman is an island. Ministry is not a solo venture. Following Jesus is a communal venture. And this changes things because this also means no longer do I wait for the church to program. No longer do I wait for the church to make it happen for me. As a follower of Jesus, I'm going to get in on it with Jesus. And then I'm going to do it with you and then we're going to do it together. And then yes, as a church, we begin to do ministry. And we program and we do these things together. And so here's the rub. This new vision as a church. If we're going to live into this vision... If it's going to be more than just words on the page, then we need a process. We need to be a church that makes disciples, that makes disciples. Because that's, that's Jesus' call for individuals and his call to the church. And we need a process. We need something that is intentional. Nobody becomes a disciple of Jesus on accident. If that were the case, then, then the landscape of Christianity would clearly look different. We don't become disciples by going to church. 
If that's the case, the landscape would look different. And that's not what Matthew did. That's not what disciples have always done. But we need to be intentional about it as everyday people in everyday places in everyday ways, individually and together. We need to have something, some process that's intentional. We need to have a process that's tangible, something you can see, touch, taste, hear, something that makes sense to every person regardless of what kind of thinker we are, whether we're a conceptual thinker or a black and white thinker. We need something that's tangible, something that you can move your family through, something that you can walk through and live in and grow in and be nurtured in and serve in And we need something that's practical, something that seems to make sense. And we need it because we are called to live into a vision. See, I think every church has a general calling, but then every church has a very specific calling, I think. And here's why I think that. Many of you, and I picked on him first service, and I have to do it again because I'm trying to be consistent in the message. Um, I don't know how many of you know Brian. Um... I won't ask you all to look around and and stand. Um, Sometimes he does acrobatics off the stage. Uh, I don't know how many of you know Brian, but but if you had a chance to know Brian, you would know that Brian Brian is wired a very specific way. God has made Brian to be the man he is. He's got a gift on piano. He's got a passion. He's a great thinker. Um, He's a practical thinker. He's a deep thinker. God has wired Brian a very specific way because Brian's the only Brian that God's going to make in this planet. And that's Brian is Brian. That's it. And the the cool thing is, is we have Brian here. That individual man that God made is the only one he's ever going to make with his giftedness. He's equipped him a very specific way to do very specific things in the kingdom of God, in this world. And we have him here. He's a part of this church. Nobody else has Brian. John. John leads worship and he leads as an elder in a very specific way based on how God made him with his experiences and education and his surrender. God is forming him in a very unique and specific way. He's the only John that God will ever make. To which Sherry may be grateful. But he's the only John that that God will ever, ever make. And yet we have him. He's a part of this family. He's here. See, the Bible teaches in Romans 12 that we are gifted based upon God's grace by God's Spirit, individually. And then Romans, 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that when we come together as a body, that that giftedness makes us a very unique body. And that if you're an arm, you're an arm. If you're a leg, you're a leg. If you're a foot, you're a thumb, you're an eye, you're a nose. That's all the metaphors that 1 Corinthians 12 uses. And says that there's only, there's only one Glenn, there's only one Bert, there's only one John, and they happen to be here. So, so not... We can't do everything that every church does. Of good causes, there are many, and they are godly good causes. But we can't do all of those good causes because we're not equipped and gifted to do all of those causes. We're equipped and gifted based upon how God has set us up here. And what churches often do is they fill holes. Example, I know you're not really a teacher, and I know you may not even have the ability and the desire to be a teacher, but we need somebody to teach for a quarter. Churches do that all the time. And so we have people serving outside of their giftedness and serving outside of how they're equipped. And we've got to get to a place as a church where we have a process, some sort of way of moving people to live in their giftedness and equipping. And not only that, we need a way that we can create margin in people's lives too as a church. I mean, how many times have you looked at church activities, especially those who have kids, and your kids are in like 17 different sports, and, and they're doing 48 different things at school, and, and you, you know, plus they need to, you know, you want them to have, you know, faith community as well and and so we have all these different things going on and and sometimes churches don't even create margin because they over program 
they overprogram. We're doing a thousand things because we got a passion, right? And we've got a, we got a conviction. So we're going to do a hundred things out there, and they're all good things. But then we stretch ourselves and overstand ourselves, and we wonder why we don't move forward. We're moving sideways, but we're busy. We need to create margin. And the best way to create margin is to come up with a process to, to say no, to say no even to good things. Even to good things. It's like creating margin in your life. It's not always a question of what's bad versus good. It's just a question of this is my vision and non-negotiables for my life. And though this thing is good, it doesn't move me to lead, live into that vision. And I've got to say no. Churches need the same. Because churches are people. And we need a filter then. We need a filter by which we can pour all of these ministry opportunities and programs and, and ideas and passions, all of this through. And it needs to lead to this vision of being joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. And if it doesn't, then we probably don't need to do it because we might not be equipped or gifted for it. And we need that. And it's hard because it requires intentionality. And it needs to be practical. I want to share with you very specifically, what we're going to call our process of ministry here is what we've called it. This is the process we want to move through. If you're a part of this church family, in order for us individually and together to live into this vision, God has called us to be, to be disciples, to be disciples who are joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We need an intentional, practical way of encouraging one another towards that goal in our lives so that we no longer become our remain, our invite, simple church-going mentality, but so that we become followers of Jesus, lovers of people, and lovers of God with our lives. And it's rooted in Matthew 23. Theologically, it's informed by Matthew 23, or 22. I've read it before, but I want to read it one last time. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two things. If Jesus said everything hangs upon loving God and loving people, then we need to create environments, programs, ministry, experiences that nurtures and leads people into a deeper life of loving God and nurtures and leads people into a deeper life of loving people. And that means you and me, your family, my family, us together. We need to create some environments. We already have them. We need to shape them. We need to create environments where its number one goal and its number one purpose is to move people into a deeper communion with God. That means having a good understanding of the Bible and having a really sincere and meaningful prayer life. Theology matters. What we believe matters. We need to be intentional about moving people into that place in their life to where you can have biblical conversations, where I can have biblical conversations with you and prayer time with you and to commune with God individually and together. For instance, an example of that is this gathering. It's a, it's a, you got dotted line approaches and you got solid line approaches. Here's what I mean. The solid line purpose of this gathering is to draw us deeper into communion of God. Now, we get to love each other and talk to each other and see each other. That all flows out of that, but that's a dotted line thing that happens here. What, what really happens here is that God is known and God is experienced and God is drawn into. We need love people environments. 
We need environments that move people into deeper community, into authentic community. And not just that, in the type of community where anybody really does belong without judgment, that anybody can be loved and known freely. We need to be a church that actually knows each other and loves each other because we understand what life is about with each other. And we need to create ministry and program and and things that, that nurture this environment. And then we also need to create environments that that move us into following Jesus in mission, that change our behavior. Things like Vibrant Life and Envoy. Things like Grove. Together. That move us into mission together. So that together we take our bread baskets and our fish baskets and we hand them out to people who are dying spiritually, physically, emotionally. And here's the goal. The goal is not to grow a church. The goal is to make us all biblically passionate, real disciples as everyday people in everyday places, in everyday ways, that you as a man will love your wife the way God loves your wife, that you as a woman will love your husband the way God has called you to love your woman, uh, her husband, that you as a student will be the kind of student on campus and the kind of influence on campus that God has created you to be, that you will be the kind of coworker that God has created you to be, that as you go about in your life, that you will think about the mission of God and participate in it on individual, real, authentic, meaningful levels. And if you do that, then we will do that. And you will be a person, then if we become disciples individually, you will be a person that doesn't wait for the church to program. Had a great conversation with somebody this week who, who just feels the need. I, I want to be a person who's missional in everything I do. That, that I don't want to wait for the church to do it. Too often we've waited for the church to do it, but if we as a church will create these environments to move people into these experiences to where we live in the middle, to where we live in the sweet spot of life, the disciple life, then we as individuals, as everyday people in everyday places and everyday ways will be passionate disciples and Christ followers, then when we come together, we will be a church that God can use in the power of numbers and in the power of multiplied faith to receive people in his name and love people the way he's called us to love people and and share with people the gospel of the kingdom of God and make a difference in this city and this world. But we gotta be intentional. Intentional.